God that is our fondest desire is to produce something in this small room that would be a sweet sound in the ears of heaven. Might something arise from the hearts and the lips of the people gathered this day that will be such a significant pleasure, such a sweet aroma in the nostrils of our Heavenly Father. Might our worship bring to you something today, O God, that will cause sweetness between us. Might there be gathered together people whose desire is not that they might consume, not that they might get, but that they might gather this morning to give, to offer something to God that has not yet been offered to Him by them. Perhaps a, a greater level of consecration. Perhaps, oh God, it is a confession of sin. Perhaps it is a vow to repent. Perhaps, oh God, it is simple and pure praise. Thanksgiving. But Father, we have gathered today to bring you something and we pray that you'll hear it that it will be a loud, clear sound emanating from this room that will be sweet to your ears. Our Father, worship is not something that comes natural to us. We are carnal through and through, save the residence of the Holy Spirit within us. It is He that has granted us life, eyes to see and ears to hear. It is He who convicts and stimulates and guides it is He who enables us to worship. And I pray, O oh God, that by the abiding, indwelling Holy Spirit that Your people might offer something that is genuinely spiritual. O oh God, we come to tell You that we are very aware that we have sinned. There is no need of convincing of that. Forgive us. Our intention, O oh God, is to walk further and further in the path of the Spirit. It is to walk in a path of righteousness that will bring glory to the God who made us and redeemed us. We pray, O oh God, that our testimony to this community might not be bruised and harmed by our individual failures. Might our testimony be something that is clear and resonant in the ears of those who are lost and dying without Christ. Father, give us love for those people. Give us a greater love for the lost peoples of the earth. Give us a greater love for our neighbors. Give us a greater love for our children and our wives and husbands. Father, might we be known as a people who by grace have become lovers. Might the time that we spend just now as we give something tangible away might it be something that demands we that we deny our flesh? Not just the leftovers, not just the remains. We want to give something that says we would rather see the kingdom of God prospered than to have a new gadget. Father, thank you for generous people. And we pray that our, the generosities that you see flowing from the hearts of people today will thrill you. We want to give according to the way that we've been blessed so that you will not have to bless us according to the way that we give.
We make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Judges and see what Gideon is up to. We uh, interrupted our study of the book of Judges and the mini-series on Gideon to uh, spend a couple of four weeks on the subject or the topic of worship. And now we return, having uh, left Gideon with his fleece that was wet and then dry, we come now to chapter 7, verse 1. Follow as I read the first eight verses of Judges chapter 7. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And whomever I say to you, This one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. So the people took provision, provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. I, um, I want to deal with this text this morning the same way that I uh, normally eat a steak. That is, I want to save the best to last. Which means that I'm going to have to reorganize the, the, the verses here, the eight verses before you. I'm going to have to take them somewhat out of order. And I'm doing that because there is in this story, this, this, uh, these eight verses, there is a, a what, what I guess you'd have to call some kind of hermeneutical sacred cow. Um, which I, I think needs to be slain. It needs to be kind of cleared away so that we can see what is the real point of this story. We need to get rid of that thing <clears throat> so that we can understand what the text really says and derive its, its intended meaning, at least I hope. The point in this story that seems to capture the imagination of, of so many who teach it has to do with the lappers. You know what I mean by the lappers? The guys that lapped, you know, the 300. The, the so-called vigilance of the lappers. That's the sacred cow that I want to slay this morning as we get rolling. But first, let me tell you the, 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 kind of the sequence of this thing. As you know, 
um, God looked at the 32,000 member army of Gideons and said, whoa, 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 that's way too big. Way too big. So um, go to them and tell them that anyone who is afraid is free to go home. Which, ladies and gentlemen, is nothing new. This is a principle that was found in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8. The officers shall speak further to the people. What, what man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go home and return to his house. That's something that has always been true about the armies of Israel. If you are afraid, go on home. Because, because fear is contagious. That's nothing new that's happening here in the book of Gideon. I, I did find an interesting comment, uh, this is somewhat of an aside, by G. Campbell Morgan. Um, he was talking really about the church and the people who are faint-hearted and have no faith and, and are fearful. And he says the problem with the church today is that they want to stay with the church instead of us sending them home. Well, that's somewhat of an aside. Uh, simply, the point is that God is whittling down this army. The first thing that he does is all they're fearful head on back. And 22,000 take him up on it. 10,000 left. And so, um, as this whittling procedure continues, God sees that there's 10,000 now and says, mm, still too many, way too many, and so I want you to take them down to the river or wherever they go and let them drink, and then I'll, I'll whittle it down some more after that. So now we've already dismissed 22,000 Frady Cats They've gone back to their, their farms, but that's still too many, says God in verse 4. At least in God's opinion, that army of 10,000 is way too big. And so one more act of sifting takes place with this water-drinking episode. And the result is they have 300 lappers and 9,700 kneelers, uh, as mentioned in verse 6. Now, here we go. The opinion of so many, I think, is that the 9,700 who were sent off, the kneelers, that those 9,700 people did something wrong. And that the 300 lappers, those guys are elevated and heralded as being vigilant, watching as they lean down to make sure that they scoop a little water and lap it out of their hands always with their eyes on the enemy, which, by the way, was still four to five miles to the north. And that because they displayed this, this wonderful vigilance, while the kneelers, you know, they're just out there carelessly gratifying the flesh and drinking all they can, that somehow these 300 are virtuous and the 9700 are somehow full of vice. I, I know you've heard that before. And um, ladies and gentlemen, the problem with that, there's lots of problems with it, but the problem is that any, any virtue, any vice that you see with, with the, with the 9700 as opposed to the 300, that has to be imported into the text. The text doesn't say that. It's pure speculation. It's what I call not exogesis, but isogesis. I want to read you just a paragraph from one man's sermon that I read concerning this lapper thing. He says, God saw how untrustworthy would be those thousands who carelessly indulged under the lure of the flesh over against the 300 who exemplified a spirit of vigilance and disciplined life in the spirit. Thus were selected the strong and the resolute 
the men who could be trusted under rigorous conditions, those who did not think of themselves before the enemy's unexpected assault. This is ever the divine principle of selection for service. As Gideon, so the church in this day is served well by the minority group ready and vigilant. And I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, that that kind of exposition undercuts the entire text. I'm saying to you that that kind of rendering and explanation of this text, number one, has no basis in the text. And it actually runs counter to the point of the text. I know you've heard that before. And I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, if you take it that way, you miss what's here. The, uh, the text doesn't hint at any virtue or vice as to how one guzzles water. The, the water drinking episode is simply God's way of further reducing Gideon's army. The attention that is lavished on these 300, I say to you, actually obscures the, the meaning of the text. For the real point of the text is found in verse 2, and what you find there is the stress placed on the necessary weakness of Israel. And ladies and gentlemen, if the point of the text is the necessary weakness of Israel, to then turn around and laud and magnify the virtue of the 300 is to go cross-purposes with the intended message that God has for us here. The 300, ladies and gentlemen, are not a sign of the virtue of anybody. The 300 are nothing more than a, a sign of her weakness, not the epitome of her strength. Ladies and gentlemen, the two armies, some estimate the Midianite army being at 135,000, but somewhere around 120,000, let's say, the ratio is still 400 to 1. You know, this, is not, this is not a story to tell you how virtuous the 300 are. This is a story that illustrates and exemplifies the necessity of weakness. You see, gang, um, let me go back, and if your Bibles are still open, and I hope they are, let's, let's read verse 2 together because that is the point of this story. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hands. Here it is. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Do you see, ladies and gentlemen, if you place all this virtue and nobility on the 300, that's exactly what God was trying to prevent us from doing. The point of this whole story is not so that men, any men, 300 of them or 300,000 of them, could be lauded. The purpose of the story is just the opposite. So that you will see that the whole issue here 
is the necessity of weakness. God in verse 2 says that he knows about a tendency that seems to exist among his own people. A tendency to glorify their own efforts, to trust in all of their proven methods, to, to give credit to their own contributions and to, and to think very highly of their own cleverness. And so God insists in this case and in many other cases, he insists that his people be reduced to this utter helplessness so that they must, they must, they must recognize that if there's ever going to be any victory, any deliverance, it can only be chalked up to God's power and mercy. The last thing God wants to see among his people is that they become boastful and claim that, that they gained the victory by their own heroism. Heroism of 300 or heroism of 32,000? It matters not. That isn't the issue. Because he knows that lying lurking in our souls is this tendency to steal credit when we don't deserve it. Gang, in all of the Christian's life, the real energy and the real genius is God. You know that? We're tempted to forget it. We're, we're tempted to forget that the power and the blessing comes wholly from the God who made us and redeemed us. We, we are prone to become so infatuated with our, with our methods and our schemes and our skills. And then what takes place, once we're so preoccupied with this, presumption then replaces faith. And then we begin to rely on the strong arm of the flesh. So in this event, ladies and gentlemen, Gideon looks at his, looks at his army and says, oh, I've got, too, I've got too few in my army. And God looks at it and says, oh, no, Gideon. You've got way too many. So God then sets out to make a point. And that point is, the necessity in everything spiritual, ladies and gentlemen, the necessity of weakness. That 32,000, they just might be big enough to prompt Gideon and all of Israel to take credit unto themselves. And that is not something that God wants to see ever happen. Does that not speak to you? <laughs> um, does it not remind you of a certain deviousness in our own hearts? A tendency to steal God's glory? You know, um, this is a, a foolish kind of example, but do you say the blessing at dinner table? Do you pray over food? 
I mean, it's a small thing. I, but do you, know, do, you know what, do you know what that says, at least to me? It says, you know, everything that's on this table, uh, you get credit for, God. And to, um, I, I think, to avoid such a thing is to, is to forget who should have gotten the credit for that which I'm consuming. We begin to take credit. My point is simply, we begin to take credit for things, ladies and gentlemen, that we shouldn't take credit for. And when we do take credit for them, glory is robbed and stolen from the one who said, I will not share my glory with another. Gang, the lesson here is that God cannot trust us with his work until we have imprinted on our souls, deep on the fleshly tablets of our souls, how inadequate we are to do his work. That's, that's the message of this story, folks. When we're few, we feel our helplessness. And so we learn to turn to God and ask for his strength. But when we are many, when we are successful, we imagine ourselves strong and man is praised and not God. Oh, my friends, look at the Christian church today. All of her numbers and her elaborate organization and her resources and her expansive ministries I want to say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that all of that could possibly be downright hurtful. <coughs> downright hurtful, ladies and gentlemen, if they tempt us to neglect the one supreme source of our power, I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, all of our resources as a church, the Christian church, Gracie Band Church, are downright hurtful to us. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not the only one who fear. I, I mean, I, along with others, fear that the church today has, grained, has gained all these numbers at the expense of spirituality. The heroes of the church today are, are strong and bright and tough and savvy and chiseled and, and, and rich and shrewd because we bought into a Madison Avenue style and approach to ministry. And I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, that this text teaches us. It teaches us not the advisability of weakness, but the necessity of weakness. Did you get that? This is not teaching us, oh, weakness might be good if you would like to choose it. This text teaches us the utter necessity. Necessity of weakness. You, you just watch God at work here as he eliminates 99% of Gideon's army so that Gideon is stripped away of any human reliance. Because God is making a point. He's making a point for us. 
as well as Gideon. You know, you know, victory comes at a very high price, ladies and gentlemen. It comes at the price of being thought of as a fool. Because that's what Gideon looked like when he headed out to meet the Midianites with 300. Gideon's plan seems ingenious enough. He divides his 300 into three groups and, and he uh, gives them some jugs that they smash and they brandish torches and blows ram's horn, blow ram horns and bellow this war cry. <laughs> Yet, ladies and gentlemen, think about it. For all of that neat little strategy, do you know what the 300 were? They were primarily horn blowers. They never attacked. They are told, the, the text says, and later on in verse 22 and 21 and 22, that they stand stationary. They're not wielding anything. They're in one place blowing a horn. <laughs> and, and verse 22 makes very clear that the victory was God's work. God set each man's sword against his companions, says the text. The 300 never attacked. They pursued once the damage had been done. And I think, ladies and gentlemen, God is proving once again that little can be very much when God is in it. It, it takes faith to believe something like that. Victories won because people have trusted God. Bring glory to God. Victories won any other way. Rob God of His deserved glory. The accomplishment, ladies and gentlemen, of God's purposes on this planet is not dependent upon large-scale Operations. We're, we're conditioned to think of success in terms of size and scale and, and superiority of numbers. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, numbers are no guarantee of success and can be an indicator of just the opposite. I want to make one final point, and I'll wrap it up. But I have to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that this is almost my major point. I want to stress, as with every fiber of my being, that God's, or that not, but Gideon's and Israel's weakness in this incident is not some false weakness induced by some mere modesty. Weakness is their real condition. So in, so in Christian or in Christian experience, ladies and gentlemen, it is important for us to define and understand what weakness is not. Weakness does not consist of being a glob of jello flung at God's feet. It, it is not that you whine a lot or that you, that you look pale or that you have the flu. You may not feel weak at all. It doesn't have anything to do with how you feel. I'm not asking you to feel weak, ladies and gentlemen. 
This, tell, this text tells you, you are weak. By definition. This is not some, let's work towards all of us feeling weak. This text tells us, ladies and gentlemen, that by definition, in reality, we are weak. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, um, so many of our problems are brought on, I think, because we have not understood that one truth. L let me see if I can illustrate. I hope to, I, I've asked the Spirit of God for words to illustrate what I mean. But think about this, ladies and gentlemen. The odds are 400 to 1. That means that if I went into battle and I stood against my enemy, I've only got four sides. I got my front side, I got my back side, and I got two sides. That would mean that I have a hundred in front of me, a hundred behind me, a hundred to my right, and a hundred to my left. Now, in the midst of that situation, I want you to walk up to Gideon and ask him, Gideon, do you feel weak? Feel weak? What do you mean, feel weak? I am weak. Gideon. Gideon, do you think you can win this? What? You, you want to know if you think I can win? Look at what circles encircling me. I have no chance. Only if God intervenes will I, will I be delivered. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I think that the origin of much of our stress, listen, the origin of much of our stress and anxiety is that we don't know that the odds are 400 to 1. I think we, we stand in the midst of of life and we say, all right, can I do this? And the, the situation is, let's just take parenting. All right, can I raise good kids? I'll say to you, ladies and gentlemen, if you do, it was by accident. And I don't mean accident, but I mean by the intervention of God, you did it. Not because you felt weak, but because you were. And when we don't know that we're weak and we're thinking, I've got to do this and I've got to do this and 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 this, it produces all kinds of anxiety and stress until you come back and remember. The issue is not that I feel weak. The issue is that I am weak. You know, ladies and gentlemen, a text that you and I have known for years, I don't think we get it. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. I want to say Paul says it, but he didn't say it. Paul wrote it, but God said it to Paul. When God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Did you get that?
want to close with just two challenges, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm finished. Oh, my friend. Oh, how I long for you to get the truth of this truth. Do you get it? I want you to get it at the base of your soul. Has it struck you? Was it you who has done so well and been so successful? Was it you that was so shrewd and so savvy and so worldly wise? Was it you that made good decisions all along? Is it all that that you point to as the explanation of, of your position and success? Are you secretly proud of your cleverness? Do you, do you wonder why other people couldn't possibly be as smart as you? Oh, my friend, I'm not asking you to feel weak. You are weak. To the leadership of this church. Do you remember? Do you remember those days in the life of Gracie Van back on Murray Road? Do you remember when, when every decision was bathed in prayer? I can remember, ladies and gentlemen, spending, I don't know, days or hours or whatever on whether or not to buy a copying machine. Do you remember those days when we walked in such conscious weakness? And has that given way to a, a carnal reliance on schemes and methods and strategies and buildings and planning? Oh, to you who are a leader, I'm not asking you if you feel weak. This is a story, ladies and gentlemen, whose central message is not about the virtue of 300. This is a story that has a lesson to it. And the lesson for us is this. Not the advisability of weakness. Father, forgive us that we have secretly taken great pleasure in our accomplishments and our victories. We are, we are men and women who have robbed you of that which was rightly yours. We have stolen things that we never should have touched. We have taken hold of something that should have been sacred to us and we should have never touched it. Your glory. Forgive us, O oh God, that so many of us think so highly of ourselves that we have concluded that the reason that we are what we are and where are where we are is because we're inwardly clever and shrewd and good. 
When in fact, oh God, that is nothing but a bold-faced lie from the pit of hell. It has the smell of smoke all over it that we would ever conclude that victory, accomplishment, success could be found in hands such as these. We repent, O oh God. We repent of ever thinking so highly of ourselves that we could master the odds. To you, O oh God, belongs all glory and majesty and strength and power and honor and glory because in our weakness your strength is perfected. Put us about that business growing weaker and weaker as you become stronger and mightier among us. We beg for you to do that. For Jesus' sake. Father, we also ask you if you have brought people here who have not yet met Jesus Christ, might they see him in all of his beauty, that he would spill his blood for the sin of mankind, that he would sacrifice his life in the place of unrighteous people, that he would die with his people's name on his lips. That he knows them by name. Might the beauty of that redemption be so overwhelmingly compelling to the lost and unsaved in this room that they hasten to embrace him. Might Jesus Christ become king in another life this morning. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.